0: I don't want to get 10. Did you know we were in a sermon series in 1 Corinthians? Remember the days when we were in 1 Corinthians? It feels like forever ago. I, I think it was just a month ago, but it feels like forever ago since we've been in 1 Corinthians. But we're going to be uh, tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 and continuing and marching right along through that study, uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians and... Uh, Excited to, to meet together again here. Um, the United States of America has a really proud history in their space exploration program. You'll, if you are around in the 1960s, some of you were around, yeah? So, so some of you were around when, when really space exploration was kind of the, the initial excitement of that was happening and different things like that. But a lot of that excitement, based on my just reading history, had died down in the 1980s up until 1986 with the launch of the Challenger. It was a little different with the launch of the Challenger for a couple of reasons. Uh, There was a lot of important research that they were going to do on this particular NASA flight, and uh, the public was a little bit more bought in because there was a civilian teacher. Do you remember her name? Christina McAuliffe who was gonna to go to space. And so there was a ton of public excitement around the launch of the Challenger space shuttle that was set to launch on January 28th, 1986. Unbeknownst to the public eye, I assume at the time, I think a lot of this was behind closed doors. Though the public was excited about the launch of the Challenger space shuttle, there was a ton of unrest and debate going on behind the scenes at NASA and with some of their subcontractors. What was going on is that the day that the Challenger was set to launch, there was supposed to be kind of like uh, this weekend, you know, just a sudden drop in temperature that was out of character for Houston. And what happened is it was so uh, controversial. As the engineers looked at this, they realized they had no data that suggested that they could have a successful launch at those type of temperatures. Their only other data, I think, was in a, in a situation in which it was 20 degrees warmer than the day that the Challenger launched. Literally, some of you maybe remember seeing the footage. There was ice on the launching pad on January 28th, 1986. And Houston, by the way, is not a very cold place. I mean, it's pretty crazy for it to be that cold in Houston, Texas. And so behind the scenes, there were some engineers, not at NASA, but at one of their subcontracted partners who... You, before you launch a space shuttle, apparently, there's several people who have to sign off. Otherwise, the space shuttle launch doesn't happen. And one of the team leads at one of the companies that was subcontracted by NASA refused to sign the launch thing and quit his job. That's how much he felt like this shouldn't happen. But those who are in decision-making powers... Obviously, someone else stepped in who was willing to sign those papers, and the people who were involved in that launch, because of some past successes and because of some, I think, political pressure to get this launch off the ground, maybe to stay ahead of the game in the scientific exploration races, dismissed all of the concerns that the engineers had brought up about the shuttle's O-rings, and their overconfidence in the success of the mission led to them launching the Challenger Space Shuttle. And all of us are familiar, except for maybe the little ones, of what happened after. Uh, As millions of people watched, 76 seconds after launch, um, the shuttle exploded and killed all seven people on board. There's a lot of lessons that can be learned from that. Certainly looking back, NASA has made several significant changes in how decisions are made because something went wrong there. But I think what one of the main themes of that harrowing tale is that overconfidence can lead to destruction. Overconfidence can lead to destruction. As I began to soak myself in 1 Corinthians 10, I thought maybe that the way you and I think about when we look back on that Challenger space shuttle situation. Might be the type of feelings that Paul had in his heart as he's writing this first part of chapter number 10 to the church at Corinth. Now, I know it's been a while, um, and so I want to do some brief review, but if you remember, there this is a church that is really talented, has some great things ahead in its future. Paul in chapter number one writes about how God is at work among them But as we've studied, we've noticed that there have been some, can I say, overconfidence, arrogance, some dangerous assumptions that have been made about what they possess because they were very much caught up in the wisdom of this world and not the wisdom of the cross. They were caught up in what they knew and not what they practiced. And so they had gotten all awry in a lot of different areas of Christian life. We talked about how they'd gotten all awry about leadership and how the church should think and process and respond to leadership. They'd gotten all messed up when it comes to sexual issues. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 thoroughly address that. There were some manipulation and extortion happening from member to member in the church. That shouldn't be happening in a church. And then on top of that, in starting in chapter number eight, we've talked about how this issue that the church was debating about that had split the church kind of in two factions had arisen that Paul was addressing. Do you remember what topic that is that was kind of hotly debated in the church? It was overeating something. What was the type of food they were debating about? Meat offered to idols, right? Now, up until this point in chapter number 10, Paul hasn't really shown his cards about what he thinks about all that. He's been very even-handed. And we're going to come next week, yeah, next week to Ahead, and we're going to really crystal clear Paul's going to lay out everything he thinks about that topic in the last part of chapter number 10. But what we haven't yet uncovered is that if you read, verses, read verse 14, that's not in our main text for tonight, we find that among this meat offered to idols issue... Paul is concerned that there is blatant idolatry happening. There are people, it's not just about what type of foods you should eat in your diet and whether or not that's okay or kosher. Some of these people are eating these meats in settings in which these things were sacrifices to gods, false gods. They were going to a temple and sitting through all the chants and all the, You know, mumbo-jumbo, that goes on an idolatrous setting and partaking of feasts that were offered to false gods. And Paul is concerned, as he looks at this church, that there are people in this church that pride themselves on the spiritual successes of the past, the experiences they've had their conversion story, their baptism, their communions they've sat under. But when you look at their life in the present moment, their life is characterized by overconfidence because they're indulging openly in sin of various kinds. Now, I think all of us understand how Paul might have felt as you and I have watched Christians who it seems like they would sign off and say, I'm a Christian, but everything in their life says I'm not a Christian. Not being judgmental, just being honest. Are you with me? Have you been there? You you look at someone's life and you're like, well, I know, know maybe you went to church or you prayed a prayer and you did this or you did that, but when I look at this season of your life, not just this moment, but this season, and I look at you and I see you don't assemble with God's people. You, don't, you care nothing about assembling. You care nothing about serving. You care nothing about uh, worshiping and spending time with Jesus right here and right now. I don't know about you, but my heart gets concerned. Maybe, I don't know, maybe for some of you, that's who you are. You're in the church. You got one foot in the church and one foot living a life that's all about you. And as someone who's been in that situation, myself, I know why people do that. When I've been a person who's going to church and doing my thing, but you know, 90% of the week, I'm doing my own thing, caring nothing about the Lord, living a life that's all about me and all about my sin, here's what I've found. When I've lived a life like that, it's not that I'm unaware I'm sinning. I found a way to justify it. And to say, oh, I'm, I'm confident in my saying in the Lord, I found a way to justify all of this. And what Paul is going to teach us in this passage tonight is that Christians should exercise caution rather than confidence when it comes to their sin that if we are looking at ourselves or we're looking at someone else who is confidently indulging in sin with no concern about their standing with God, Paul is going to show us this passage in a very, very strong passage. So I'm going to try and preach it like Paul would that those people may find themselves a victim of what I'm going to call tonight a fearful falling, a fearful following. Our text tonight breaks up in two parts. The majority of the text, verses 1 through 12, describes this fearful falling that all of us, verse number 12 says, all of us should be concerned about. (laughs) If you think you're standing tonight, if you think you're settled in your faith, Paul says, doesn't matter. Verse number 12 says, take heed, be careful, lest you find yourself victim of a fearful falling. He's going to show us and he's going to sweep across the history of the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And he's going to show us that when he is looking at the Corinth church, he's seeing the same patterns of a generation that had received every spiritual privilege one could recognize under the sun and yet their bodies were thrown across the wilderness in God's judgment. Now that may sound like a really not a fun ride, but our text ends... Not talking about a fearful falling, but talking about our faithful friend who will enable all of us to overcome sinful temptation. I want us tonight to just soak in these 13 verses, which if you read them well, you recognize they're not just about teaching us how to interpret the Old Testament. They are teaching us the dangerous consequences of being overconfident in yourself, in your standing with God. Let's find our reading together in 1 Corinthians 10, verse number one. It says, moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat "...and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, he's quoting the Old Testament in each of these sections, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and 20,000. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. These are the words of our Lord, and I hope tonight we study them with great reverence. As I said, and I think the concern of Paul is that one of the things that keeps people properly concerned about their sin and cautious about their sin is the the past spiritual experiences they may have under their belt. Let me give you an example. If someone says, Are you saved? It can be a temptation for some, I'm not saying this is a temptation for you, but it can be the temptation for some that when someone asks them, are they saved, they are looking in their past for a spiritual experience. They're looking for in a conversion moment. They're looking for an emotional encounter with God. The reason I know that is when I ask people if they're saved, generally that's what they're pulling from. Let me look back in my life of a moment I felt God, Right? And they're looking for some sort of emotional confirmation to help themselves be assured that they are one of God's people. Because surely if I'm one of God's people, that, if I wasn't one of God's people, that wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have felt that way. I wouldn't have been crying in tears about my sin that day. And so they look for a moment, a spiritual experience to assure them. They look for conversion. They look for baptism. They look to a moment of God's protection or blessing as the proof that they are saved. Communion sometimes is what people look to, especially if they come from a Catholic tradition, because in the Catholic tradition, they say that communion gives us a piece of God's saving grace through Christ. But what we need to recognize is that none of those things are supposed to be our assurance of salvation, I think it's significant. I'm not saying your conversion experience is irrelevant, but I want you to think about this and meditate on this for a while. Name a time in the Bible where where one of the biblical authors says, here's how you know you're saved. Walk me through your conversion experience. You'll never see that. Because the Bible vastly says that moments are overrated, and a longevity of following Christ and believing the gospel is underrated that a moment of encounter with God isn't the best proof of your salvation. The best way to know whether or not you're saved is whether or not you believe the gospel and are clinging on to the truth of the gospel, and whether or not you are in the long haul following Jesus. We have waves like this, but at the end of our life, are we following Jesus or are we not? Let me give you an example. Some of you know that occasionally someone, you know, chooses to have me as their wedding photographer or videographer. I've been to a lot of weddings as a preacher and as a camera dude. Been to a lot of them. Seen a lot of things. And I'll never forget the most emotional wedding I was at. It was a wedding in Liberal. It was a guy who owned like an oil service company. His name is Josh. And I remember going, and I just was blown away. This is an older guy. I assume he had been married maybe once before. He had a kid who was probably 12 or so. And he was marrying this young gal who was a nurse in the area. And I remember doing their wedding. And I remember, we, if I remember right, we, we did the wedding first, and then we did portraits. And I, I'll, I've never seen since this time a man crying as much as this dude cried when his bride was walking down the aisle. It was, it was like almost awkward. You know when someone cries so much, it's like kind of getting awkward. Like it's no longer touching. It's like, okay, bro, like, you need a hanky or what? Like, let's move on with the ceremony. And then we're doing portraits uh, where I'm taking their picture. I think my friend was doing the picture. I was doing the video. And, you know, he's just crying and, and ooing and awing over this girl and just googly-eyed over her and just, you know, kissing her all over your face and, oh, you're so beautiful and just so emotional through the whole day. And I was like, wow, this guy really, really loves this girl. That was the most emotional wedding I ever did. It also is the only wedding, normally I finish a wedding video within two months of shooting it, that before I could even get the wedding video edited, they had annulled their marriage. And I think spiritual things are very similar, that our emotions at the outset are not the best projection of our longevity. Are you with me? Friends, Let me just lay out the brass tacks. There are a lot of people, and I'm not thinking of anyone, but I I, I know this is true. There are a lot of people who've bawled their eyes out, walking in an aisle to pray a prayer who will not be in heaven. Because our emotions and our experiences are not the best assurance of our standing with Christ. And, and I say that because that's exactly what Paul is noticing when he's watching the wilderness generation. In verses one through five, what he's showing us from the example of the wilderness generation is that past spiritual experiences don't protect you from a future judgment. He surveys. Notice that the one word that shows up all the time is the word all, right? I mean, we, we read it, right? They were all under the cloud and they were all through the sea, verse number one. They were all baptized unto Moses. Now, that's interesting, right? We don't think of the, the Israelites being baptized. And I think uh, Paul's being very intentional with his wording because he's not just talking about the Israelites. He's talking to the Corinthians. He says, let me tell you about some people who've been protected by God. Let me tell you about some people who've been baptized. Let me tell you about some people in verse number three that ate that same spiritual meat and drank that same spiritual drink. Put your minds in gear. What is Paul maybe alluding to in the Corinthians life when he's talking about eating and drinking something from the Lord? The Lord's Supper. He said, let me tell you about some people who've ate spiritual meat and drank spiritual meat and who themselves have been ministered to by Christ in the wilderness wanderings. And yet, here's what Paul says. You look at those same people They've received every privilege. They went through the Red Sea. They were protected by God day and night. They went through everything and experienced all sorts of protections and assurances from God. But yet he says the end is much more important than the beginning. Because look at verse number five. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. Now, when I first read that, I thought, you know, how I might sometimes say to my kids, I don't use this language, I'm not very pleased with you right now. You know what I mean? When you say that to your kids, you're like, I'm still your dad, but you're really making me upset right now. That's not the idea here. The actual underlying idea here is, is if you look at Hebrews ten thirty-eight, which will be on the screen, the idea of not being well-pleasing to the Lord is someone who is not a Christian, who is not one of his people. Look at this. Now the just shall live by faith, but now he's contrasting with the people who are not saved, who are not just. If any man draw back my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Literally, it reads the same way. My soul is not well pleased in him. This is speaking of someone who's not a Christian, who apostatizes from Christ And what Paul is saying is that all these people experienced all these blessings in the wilderness. In the end, they were not God's people. Now you might say, that sounds strange to me. Well, Paul offers a proof to you if you're a little bit skeptical about that claim. He says, let me show you why I think they're not God's people and did not enjoy God's promised land for them. A picture of heaven. Look at the end of verse number five. Notice there's a colon there. That means he's explaining the earlier claim. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. The the language here is very colorful. You you could almost word it this way based on the Greek that he's using. Their bodies were scattered across the desert. That's the idea Paul's giving here. He says, yet many of those people experienced all those privileges, the Red Sea, the, the meat and the drink from God himself They were not God's people. They were not well-pleasing to God. And here's my proof. He says, just imagine their bodies scattered across the wilderness. And then in verses 6 through 12, he's going to show us many different reasons these bodies ended up lying dead in the wilderness. He's going to make a compelling case that when you and I or when any person gives themselves over to sinful temptation, they themselves will not receive God's pleasure. They will meet God's destruction. Verses six through 11 show us that those who fall into their evil desires will meet God's destruction. And verse number six is kind of a header. He says, these things are our examples that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So he's saying, here's the, he, he kind of wraps the whole sermon in the two points. He says, I'm going to show you all these examples so that you don't desire evil habitually in the same way they desired evil. And verse number 12, he's saying, here's the other lesson I want you to learn. I don't want you to experience the fearful falling they all ex- experienced. I don't want your bodies to be destroyed by God before you reach the promised land. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to show us four different reasons. These people desired evil and therefore faced God's destruction. Verse number seven, he, he's going to give us multiple commands. He's going to say in verse number seven, don't fall in the same way they fell to idolatry. Don't be idolaters like they were. And he's quoting from the account there in Exodus 32. Remember what happened at the base of Mount Sinai? What did the people find themselves worshiping? Quite literally, right after God appeared and gave them the law. They found themselves fashioning what type of idol? A golden what? A calf. And he's quoting from Exodus 32. and, And interestingly, Paul uses language that's not found in Exodus 32, where he says that they were eating and drinking. Now, why would Paul add that detail there? It's not in Exodus 32. I think because he's picturing as these people are having this drunken feast at the base of Mount Sinai with an idol, he's picturing in his mind the same thing that some of the Corinthians are doing in idol temples. They are eating and drinking to the honor of false gods in the same way that the people in Exodus 32 were eating and drinking and worshiping this golden cow. And he says... They ate and drank, and they rose up to play. There's a likelihood that that word play is a a PG-rated term to describe sexual activity that was going on in this drunken feast. And we all know what happened there, don't we? Let me remind you, 3,000 people's bodies were scattered across the wilderness that day, and then even more of them got sick from the Lord. God even made, remember some of the priests drink the gold mixed with water that made them sick, and some of them die. He says, don't fall to idolatry like they did. Verse number five, he says, don't indulge in sexual immorality like the wilderness generation. Indulge in sexual immorality. There's a little bit of debate about what this is referring to, Most likely it's referring to Numbers 25 when the Israelites joined in adulterous marriages with the Moabite people. Remember Balaam and Balak and that whole incident? Right after that, it it says that the, the Israelites started joining themselves. They already had a wife, most of them. They thought, I'm just gonna have another one. So they went out and married some of the pretty Moabite girls. Well, that sexual immorality, friends, did not end very well for them, did it? It ended with over 20,000 people dying in a single day. I don't know if you're figuring out the theme here, but if you give yourself over to evil desires, it will end in destruction. (laughs) And then verse number nine, Paul says how these people fell to the desire of tempting Christ. Tempting Christ. What is tempting Christ? Okay. Tempting Christ, it's provoking him. I like how verse number I verse number 22 says, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Everyone in here, except for you guys, but you deal with kids on a weekly basis, you've had a kid or a grandkid. You know, there's always that. We're dealing with this with Noel. There's that, that initial, like, really important time where your kid needs to learn who's the boss in the house, and generally it has to do with something they're trying to touch, right? Don't touch, That's the first thing Noel, I think, was really getting hold of when it comes to commands. Don't touch. And what do those little snots do right after you tell them don't touch? Right? That's tempting, provoking the Lord or a parent, right? It's hearing what the command is, and looking your authority dead in the eyes and saying, try me. Or like, you know, the older brothers and sisters do. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. <laughs> I'm going to get as close as possible. You know? You read, you read Numbers and you read Deuteronomy and you read Exodus. And what do you find about the wilderness generation? God is telling them over and over and over. Would you stop that? That's the Mike Collins translation, but it's close, you know. He's done stop that. And what do they do? They think, ah, oh, God's not going to kill us this time. He spared us last time. Let's do it again, and maybe we'll get away with it. And over and over and over again in the wilderness, they tempted Christ. And again, we don't know exactly what this is referring to. Most likely it's as they were demanding the food that they had had in Egypt. Of course, they had a much more positive spin on how things went in Egypt, right? They said, oh, in Egypt, we ate so well. No, you were like battered slaves in Egypt. What are you talking about? They said, oh, we had garlics and leeks and onions and meat. And God, all you've given us is this dumb manna. And Numbers 21 shows what happens when you tempt Christ. Because in Numbers 21, as is alluded to in verse number nine, Venomous serpents went throughout the camp and destroyed many people. Verse number 10, Paul says, you should not give in to another evil desire. Now, now as I'm reading this passage, here's what I'm thinking. Okay, really bad sins. Tempting Christ, that's pretty bad. Um, Idolatry, worshiping a false god, pretty bad. Um, Sexual immorality, sounds pretty bad to me. I don't know about you, but if I'm trying to think of sins that belong in that category, I don't think I would have thought of verse number 10 because you've got idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting Christ, grumbling, complaining. But yet, isn't it Israel's complaining that God dealt with the most often? Friends, I don't know, I tend to over, underestimate how serious of a sin it is to look at my God up in the sky and say, you haven't given me enough. And we read of the tales of people who gave their lives over to the sin of complaining and murmuring against their God. Now, we, here's what's crazy. They complain so much, scholars don't even know which incident Paul's referring to here. They complained so much and were judged by God so often for their complaining, we're not really sure which one he's referring to. Is it them complaining about their food and the old life that they wish they had that God judged them for and killed them for in Numbers? Or is it them complaining a few chapters later in Number 16 about their leadership? in which the entire earth, Judson, you just taught this a couple weeks ago, right? In which the earth itself opened up into a pit and swallowed thousands of people alive. They complained so much and were just for it, we don't even know which one. And yet here's what Paul is saying. That when we look at our sin... We dare not approach our sin with the type of overconfidence that the wilderness generation did, in which we think we can get away with, like these kids that we all have to raise. Yes, spank me or not. No, what Paul says is that the only acceptable attitude towards sin is caution. We don't play with sin. We don't play with idolatry. We don't play with putting someone or something else above God. I I can't help but think of the verses that are actually in the book of Numbers. Be sure your sins will find you out. Friends, don't think that God will excuse and look over the idolatry that you or me may be given over to. Don't think that whether it's public or private, whether it's consequential yet or not, in what way you or I may be given over to sexual temptation, don't think God looks past it. Friend, in the same way that your kid may cross that line one time and another time and another time and another time, and as a parent, you're like, ooh, boy. And you can't predict when the judgment will fall. The same is true with our sin. You can get away with sin 99 times because of God's grace. But you cannot predict when the judgment will fall for your sin. Sexual immorality. Tempting Christ. That covers about everything. Or complaining. Man, I don't know about you, I complain way too much. Someone give me a witness. I complain way too much. And this passage tells us, look, I know we all sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But what this passage tells us is that there is a line that we cross where we are given over to our sin. And the example of the wilderness generation teaches us this, that people who give themselves over to sin in the end are not God's people. And the proof of that is that they don't make it to the promised land. And Paul is looking at the Corinthians, and I suspect he's concerned for the souls of some of these people. Because there are people, mind you, in chapter 5 and chapter number 6, who are openly giving themselves over to the very sins he's talking about here. There are people engaged in affairs of the church who don't seem to care about what the Bible says about that. There are people giving themselves over to idolatry and eating at these idol feasts that don't really seem to care about it. In fact, they've just found a way to justify it. And I think Paul's looking at him and says, listen, I'm concerned that you think you are steady and you are standing with God, but look at verse number 12, take heed. Let him that thinks he stands take heed. Be careful, be careful. If you think you're secure, be careful because there are a lot of people who based on just some past spiritual experiences think their salvation was secure. And the reality is, it's not that they lost their salvation, friend. It's that they were never saved at all. It was just a moment of emotions. That's all it was. Now, I don't know about you. When I I read chapter number 10, I'm like, boy, what hope do we have? My soul. We got people who've, experienced more things than I'll ever experience. They've gone through the Red Sea and they've watched God deliver them time and time and time again. And they watched the judgment of God fall. you think after the first time they would have learned. But they watched the judgment of God fall time and time and time again. And yet they go back to their sin and go back to their sin and go back to their sin. And more people die. And more people die. And the only people who made it to the promised land of what we estimate are millions of people who left the land of Egypt. How many people made it to the promised land, friends? Two. Two. I look at that and I think, what hope do I have? I know my heart. I know my struggle with sin. And when I look at this generation of Israelites and what happened to their sin and how they just kept going back and kept going back and it seemed like they couldn't escape the cycle. All I feel friends is I feel hopeless. But praise God, that's not where the passage ends. Yes, sin is powerful and destructive. But what our passage teaches us is that though sin may be powerful and destructive, God is faithful to help you and I overcome. God is faithful. I love verse 13. I know most of us probably haven't memorized, but it's still good. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Isn't that kind of Paul's point? He's highlighting from the experiences of the people of Israel that they were dealing with the very same things the church of Corinth was idolatry, immorality, tempting Christ, and grumbling. They were grumbling about their leaders. Remember that? In chapter number three, in chapter number four. And so what he's saying is, listen, folks, let me give you a dose of hope tonight. You are not dealing with a sin that God's people have not encountered before. Now, y'all, listen, I understand. That, that there are going to be different types of temptation that each generation encounters. We got kiddos who are getting raised up who, who, who won't even know what a life is like without a tablet or a phone in their possession at almost all times. That scares me. I don't even, I didn't even grow up with that, right? And some of you all, I mean, You know, I was thinking, uh, Jerry, right? You were in the auditing department. You retired when they started, you know, putting in computers in the federal auditing department, right? And and, and so we have a a vast difference in the type of scenarios we encounter, but yet the reality is, is that sin is sin. Temptation is temptation. And I know that may sound like it's making your temptation seem smaller, but that is a hopeful thing because, look, the, the temptation that ensnares you the most There have been people who face the exact temptation you struggle with, the thing that gets you every time and they have overcome it by God's grace. There is nothing you are facing tonight that is unique. That is exceptional. That is impossible. Every temptation you and I face is common to man. It is common to human experience. But yet verse number 13 doesn't just tell us to look at our temptation and say, listen, we can have hope because nothing we are facing in our temptations is exceptional or impossible. It calls us to look our eyes up to heaven and look to our faithful friend. Because the reality of a fearful falling is true. There are people who will not make it to God's heavenly rest because they gave themselves over their, to their desires. But that my friend, does not mean that you and I have to face the same fate because we have a faithful friend. His name is God, and he is faithful, verse number 13. And he will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able. God, this this is profound. There is not a single temptation you will ever face that you have to give into. Not a single one. Think about that. This week, you or I will be tempted to lust, to spend money in a dumb way, to be a grumbler and a complainer, to be critical, to be mean, to say words we shouldn't say, to not worship God in a way we should worship him, to withhold sharing the gospel, to withhold when the Spirit prompts us to be kind or generous or merciful to someone. Boy, oh boy, there's gonna be a lot. But listen, not a single one of those temptations do you have to give in to. God will never, ever, ever allow you to face something that you cannot overcome. Friends, that is hopeful. You want some proof of that? Write down three letters. Three letters. J-O-B. Job. If anyone had an impossible temptation, it was that guy, right? Hey, Satan, right, appears before God. I don't know if that's literal or not, but you know, it's there for us to see something. That here's Satan, and he's going to tempt Job. He like, I'm gonna take away everything. And God says, you know what? You can't. Just don't kill the guy. But you can do anything you want to him. So what does Satan do? makes him crazy diseased. His whole family drops dead. He loses a bunch of a bunch of money, like a lot. There's not been an NBA or NFL star who's lost more money than Job. He lost it all, friends, lost it all. And it's not because he made a dumb decision, it's because Satan took it away from him. And you read 40 plus chapters of Job, and what does it say to Job? That he never cursed God. God cursed did not allow him to be tempted above that he was able. And you might say, well, Job was probably some super Christian. Maybe he was. But friends, God knows who you are. He knows how weak you are. And he will never allow Satan or anything else in your life to tempt you in a way that is more than you can handle. Now, How could that be true? Well, because the last part of verse 13 The reason we could say that you will always be able to overcome the temptation is that that God promises us this. He will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that you will be able to bear it. Now, I'll be honest. When I quoted this verse or read it, I always thought, like, okay, what is this saying, right? What's the way of escape? I would have really liked to know sometimes. Like, is there a trap door? (sighs) You know, I'm, I'm no longer tempted with this thing. I don't think that's it. Maybe sometimes it is. I don't think that's it. I think the way of escape that's hinted at in the text is God Himself, His grace, His power through the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. You have the same power. That's a way of escape. I mean, it got a guy out of a tomb who was dead. I mean, that's pretty good escape if you ask me. And so what what God is saying is "I'm, I'm there for you. I'm faithful to you. And because I'm with you, you can escape whatever Satan throws at you, whether it's immorality or idolatry or tempting Christ. You don't have to give in to any of it because I am there for you. Chapter 9, verse 27, I think shows us that maybe it's our own self-discipline that is part of this way of escape. What does Paul say? I'm gonna beat myself or subject my body to self-discipline so that I won't be a castaway. I won't be like what is described in in chapter number 10. But nonetheless, here's what we know, that God is faithful to help us overcome every single temptation we will ever face. Friends, you don't have to sin, ever. If you have the spirit of God in you, you never have to sin, ever. You choose to, right? A lot? Yeah? Okay. But you never have to, ever. It doesn't matter what your family history is. It doesn't matter if you're like me and you've got family that they have that anger problem or they, ha- they, they blow up on people or they dealt with that addiction. Doesn't matter. God will never tempt you above that you're able. It doesn't matter if you feel like you struggle with that certain desire more than other people struggle with it. And that may be true, by the way. I think all of us have our own weaknesses. But yet, you don't have to give in to those weaknesses. James 1 tells us your circumstances can't even force you to sin. You can be in the hardest time of your life, friend. And I think a lot of Christians, when life gets tough, they justify giving themselves over to every sin under the sun because, well, life is hard. So I just have to choose sin. No? Life was pretty hard for Job, right? And yet God was faithful to him, and he didn't curse God. He didn't curse God. Sin is powerful, is it not? Sin is so powerful, it wrecked millions of people in the wilderness generation who refused to choose God over their sin. And the proof is there. Their bodies, their carcasses, verse number five tells us, are laying in the wilderness. And that's the proof that sin is powerful. It keeps a lot of people from reaching the promised land. But God is faithful. He's faithful. Cling to him. Trust his grace. Live in self-discipline. And you never, ever have to say yes to sin. I want to speak to two different people here. Maybe there's someone here whose life has fallen headfirst into sin and you've almost given up the desire to fight it. Or maybe you know someone like that, and you, you have a place to be able to speak to them. <clears throat> Our passage teaches us that sometimes as a Christian, if someone is given over to sin, let me warn you with people like that, God is not well pleased. Be careful, because overconfidence can lead to destruction. Not because you lose your salvation, but because someone who lives like the wilderness generation lived, verses 6 through 11, never was saved at all. Maybe you're here like and you're like me. I fall to sin, fall to sin, fall to sin. Turn to God, cling to him. He is faithful He will never let you down. Draw close to him. And he will draw close to you. Those who are humble, God exalts. He does not let them fall. And God will be faithful and he will get you through it. And you will suffer losses to sin like I have and like all of us have. But if you cling to God and trust him, he is a faithful friend. He will not let you fall. Sin is not more powerful than Christ. Father, we pray and we thank you for your grace. God, though it could be said that only two reached the promised land, we can think of many saints who've gone before us, who lived long, faithful lives, as a testimony that God is faithful. We are only faithful because you are faithful, God. We only love you because you first loved us, and I I pray for the the Christian tonight who feels like they're losing to sin. God, help them to know they don't have to. You are stronger. You are more faithful. Lord, help us as Christians to exercise wisdom. There's a time and a place, and sometimes we gotta be careful in how we do this, but if there's someone we love who's straying into their evil desires and is not repenting and, and just living for their sin even if it's grumbling all the way up to sexual immorality or idolatry, help us to warn them that giving themselves over to evil desires will lead to their destruction. pray and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.